night. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to a spooky episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big old list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst, which you can find over on comicsxf.com. So Will, how are you at this creepiest time of the year? Okay, we're recording this way before said spooky time, but we're trying to get into a mindset here. Well, if I'm going to be honest, Matt, I'm I'm having kind of a rough week. I I got some rough medical news. Um, I was going to share it with the listeners tonight. I went to the doctor, and apparently, I need a butthole transplant because. I was listening to our first episode and I crammed my head so far up my ass that it broke. It broke, man. I broke my asshole and now I need a new asshole. Oh, so, so listeners, if you know of a possible donor asshole for me, I could really use one. Oh, now, now. Yes, we are recording this on the eve of the time when you will all be hearing our first episode. Only the two of us and previous guests of the show to you, and I guess to us at this point, Dan Grode, have heard said episode. But I don't see where where you crammed your head anywhere. I thought that went quite well. I I had a good time. Getting high on our own supply, uh, listening to the very first episode. I hope the people like it tomorrow. You know, you and me both, because we're going to keep doing it one way or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Try to stop us, motherfuckers. You can't (laughs) stop us. Uh, But yeah, no, uh, it's it's a very spooky time. And uh, we read some spooky books. And I I think the, the, the subtitle for this episode is... Spooky books, the bat chat, Mary fuck kill episode. <laughs> yeah, Batman and horror have gone together since some of the earliest Batman stories. Uh, one of the first Batman stories in Detective, you know, predating even Batman number one, predating Robin in Detective Comics 31 was Batman versus the Monk, which was a vampire story which I'd originally thought about doing for this episode, but is not easily available digitally. And my copy of a trade that has it is buried in a box somewhere. And well, so that, yeah, I really didn't feel like digging that out. Someday I'll have easy access to my entire collection someday, but Batman and horror work together. I mean, Batman is a creature of the night. And while Batman tends to fit pretty well within a myriad of genres i feel like horror whether it's you know your psychological horror that you can get with a good scarecrow or joker story or a more supernatural batman story as we're going to be dealing with tonight can really work yes the batman i tend to dislike the most is science fictiony batman but for all the reasons you said 
uh, horror Batman really, really works. And some of his villains really, really work. Uh, not that we're getting any of them tonight. Well, for the most part, but Clayface, body horror, man bat, same thing. Like that, those are concepts that hang together. And why not some Draculas? Yep. And on the note of Dracula, let's hit our first story for the week. This week, we're starting off with Batman Dracula Red Rain. This was a graphic novel. The writer was Doug Mensch, pencils by Kelly Jones, inks by Malcolm Jones III, colors by Les Dorscheid, letters by Todd Klein, edited by Denny O'Neill and Kelly Puckett. And the cover date is February of 1992. This is an Elseworlds story, and the title kind of says most of what you're getting. You get what's on the tin here. Dracula comes to Gotham. Batman fights Dracula. And if we're, if we're going to be honest, he kind of fights Dracula to a draw. Like, you can't really at the end of this say that Batman comes ahead. No. I mean, even though Dracula dies, he leaves a legacy behind in that ah we'll just we'll spoil it and say it right here yeah this book ends with batman having become a full-on vampire something that is explored in the two sequels to this book uh bloodstorm and crimson mist but for this one it is a very batman-centric story we don't have any members of the extended rogues gallery uh, which becomes a thing in those next two volumes. This oh, is Oh, I can't wait for those. Oh. This is pure Batman in a Gotham that is somewhat crumbling. I mean Gotham's always somewhat crumbling, granted. But here there's there's stuff going on, systemic things that are somewhat subtext but also somewhat text and On top of all of these horrors, here comes vampires in Gotham City. I have two minute quibbles with this book, and and we'll certainly talk about everything that I love. But the first goes into what you're saying uh, about Gotham generally. For whatever reason, this seems like a very English Gotham, and it was kind of off-putting. And the other complaint is goddamn cursive lettering i every every letterer who has ever thought hey let me just put some cursive in here i want to find you i want to fuck you up that shit is hard to read and i hate it i hate it in every book there has never been a comic book where i'm like thank god for this cursive lettering i was going to be so disappointed if this lettering had not been cursive i hate being able to read things easily I was going to specifically ask you about the lettering because I know you have very strong feelings about lettering. And Todd Klein's cursive lettering is a thing. I mean, Klein is one of the founding pillars of modern lettering. And it worked a little bit better in Sandman. But I also wonder if that's because I've read this stuff in hard copy. It's still trickier in physical but I find the cursive lettering even rougher digitally than I do when I'm holding the book. Cause I read this this time digitally and it struck me as harder to read than it had in previous go throughs. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. 
And I, I, I never want it in any book ever. Like I know there's some, there have been some recent books where like, oh, this is you know, this is the the 1800s. I'm writing a letter home. Let me put it in cursive script. No, stop that. Figure out some other motif. There's there's never ever ever a good enough reason for this. Ugh. We didn't touch on this at the beginning, but the mentioned Jones, Doug mentioned Kelly Jones are one of the staple. Batman creative teams of the 90s. Other than these three graphic novels that are in this cycle, they had a decent length run on the core Batman title. They did another Elseworlds called Dark Joker the Wild, dark fantasy story with Joker as an evil sorcerer. Mensch actually did Batman, did numerous runs on the Bat books from the mid 80s into the 90s with a lot of different creators. And Jones's Batman is one of the most visually striking and well-known with that giant cape and the giant ears and his sort of weird takes on anatomy. He's done other Bat projects with Steve Niles. Uh, he draws a wicked dead man. He did two dead man miniseries for... I'm gonna, I was about to say Vertigo, but I think they're mature readers' books that predated Vertigo and were only reprinted in trade under the Vertigo banner, but they're still their Vertigo-feeling books. But his stuff... Don't you, is, don't you mean Black Label? Yeah. <laughs> Black Label. <laughs> What's this Vertigo thing you're talking about? Uh, sorry to so rudely interrupt, uh, no. but um, Jones is my guy. And I'm going to try to trick Matt here into reading as much Kelly Jones as possible for this uh, for this podcast, because I just I love I love his aesthetic. I love his Batman. And by God, I want to go back in time and I want to throw a, a, a parade for whoever thought, hey, Kelly Jones, he draws a weird looking Batman. Uh, let's put him in a horror book. Wouldn't that be great? Pretty sure this is his first bat work then he goes on to be the cover artist for all of nightfall all of that you know the asbat stuff the bane the arkham breakout he does the covers for that entire 19 part crossover and then he actually continues on as the cover artist on at least detective if not detective and batman for night quest and night's end Takes a couple of months off, and then when the book comes back after Prodigal, when Bruce Wayne returns after the brief time when Dick Grayson was Batman the first time, Jones is the artist on the main Bat title for another three to four years, somewhere from five fifteen till somewhere in the early in the five fifties. So he, it's, it's it's enough sizable, to get two volumes. Yeah, it's a sizable run, and we forget that. Back in the day, you could have writer-artist teams not on creator-owned books that stuck on a mainstream superhero book for multiple years with only the occasional fill-in issue versus alternating arcs and things. Not that I'm saying that there's anything bad about getting different artists to come in and work with a writer, but there was something during that period, you had Mensch on Batman... Chuck Dixon on Detective and Alan Grant on Shadow of the Bat. Each of them were on those books from 1993 to 1998. 
They all Ooh. three writers were on there for five years, and each of them worked with one to two artists during those runs. This this book is wonderful. This book is great. This book is perfect. This uh, aside from the lettering and the weird English vibes, uh, it's just it's stupendous. Uh, I I read this years and years and years ago, and I love it even more now. I even I love it more thinking about the sequels. I have not reread. I can't wait to get to those. It just, it goes to such an absurd point. Like, I love the ending here where it's, oh, Batman's a vampire, but he's a vampire for good. And then we see where it goes in those sequels. My goodness. Uh, Spoiler, uh, it does not go well. <laughs> no, no. Bat, bat breaks real bad. <laughs> I will say I had one other quibble and it might be a thing. And I have a specific page note for this. Ooh. Okay. Um, Pages 40 and 41. Okay. Let me flip through here. This is a scene where Batman is literally facing off with Dracula and Batman has made a cross of blood on a wall to hold Dracula back until the sun rises because Batman isn't fully transformed at this point. And it's supposed to be waiting for sunrise. But the light, there's some stuff in some places, but specifically here, where the coloring seems a little too bright for it to be night. Like I thought it, Batman says that he has to wait hours for sunrise, but it seemed like there was a little too much light in that scene coming through that grate. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. The lettering bugged me, too. I didn't so much notice the British Gotham, but the coloring there, and I, I didn't note the other couple places where I noticed it, but that specifically was like, huh, that seems odd. However, if you go back another few pages to page 31, there's another panel where it's like the lighting on this panel there's a, with Batman is just so gorgeous. <sighs> I can't completely fault the colorist on this book. It was just a couple of places where, I mean, these are two characters that are both wearing black and cloaked in shadow. So I guess you do have to accept that there's going to have to be more light or otherwise it's just going to be black panels. Can I say something sacrilegious? Sure. I would like this, or I would be interested to read this recolored with a modern approach. Hmm. Continue. (laughs) <laughs> because uh, so much of it say you know, we were just looking at uh 41 42 oh by the way the, oh my god that 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 splash on 37 oh, oh it's so good yes the, oh, the so batman good. i mean again that's kelly jones's batman cape it has a life of its own and it you know, i mean that's the kind of the thing for spawn spawn's cape in costume is actually sentient and does have a life of its own but i i'm pretty sure Kelly Jones' Batman is wearing something similar because there's no way that cape is moving just with the wind. It is doing something. But what I was going to say is so many of these colors, and again, we're both looking at this digitally, they seem faded. Like there's not a lot of vibrance here. I'm on like 43. Like we got some teals. We got some greens. Like I would love to see this with some more, again, darker, more modern approaches. Like it, it might be terrible. I'm willing to admit this might come out worse than what we have now, 
but I would be interested to see this recolored. I would be curious because I think we're going to talk about an older comic that has, if read digitally, touched up colors in a couple minutes. And I'm curious to see some thoughts on that. But some of the other things we should talk about in this book, because there's a lot here. We're going to kind of go longer on this one because our next story is a shorter one. And so we can have a little wiggle room. And, and the one after that is duty. <laughs> the one after that, <laughs> th- there will be discussion. There will be discussion, but it's, it's going to be something. I like the design on Dracula in this oh, book. Fuck, it's good. Both in his vampire, you know, monster vampire form and in his human form. It's in his human form. This is a very sort of modern, sexy Dracula. It's not, you know, he's not Lugosiing it and he's not Nosferatuing it. This is a guy who he's handsome, he's suave. It it works for what Dracula should be in a modern wandering around in the city. And his his vampire form is tremendous. It's bat-like, but what's cool is it's bat-like and it's somewhat skeletal. It doesn't look, oh, okay, Kelly Jones is drawing man bat and that's you know what he's doing here. It's like no, 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 this isn't man bat. This is obviously something else. And there's so much detail in the face, the lines, the creases, the sharpness. You know, we will eventually compare this with the duty book and its vampires. Like there's just laziness all over that book. Every single bit of that is like the minimum effort. Vampires in that book, oh, uh, they just got fangs. Like, that's it. Oh, it's, it's a vampire. It's got fangs. That's all we got to do. Here, they are monstrous. And it's just, it's so much to look at. The vampires that are somewhat decomposed from having been down in the sewers, these like half zombie, half vampire sort of things are super creepy. Jones does a tremendous job drawing those. And even if you had removed the cursive lettering, you would still have gotten a Victorian sort of vibe here because the prose is so purple and is obviously playing with the Dracula, the Stoker Dracula novel and that heavy purple Gothic prose. There's also some at times a bit heavy handed, but never completely off-putting social commentary in this book, specifically about how the vampires, Dracula and his initial band of vampires are preying on the homeless and it's being brushed under the rug because no one is going to notice it. In any reality, regardless, mayors of Gotham City suck. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. We, we had this conversation uh, when we were talking about uh, Mayor Nakano and you know for the the print bat chat, and I we made the observation that yeah, the mayor of Gotham is always bad. He's either incompetent or he's on the take or he's you know politically bumbling around. I, I, I will say the idea of a black mayor stating, "Oh, this looks bad because it's black people dying." I can't have that come out. Ooh, ooh, that's kind of a strange, cringy 
note that uh, that we really don't need because that theme is not really explored and it just kind of detracts from what is an excellent book. There is some vampirism as AIDS metaphor in here as well, but this is the early 90s. So that's very much in the zeitgeist at this point. But yeah, I mean, I liked the idea of the vampires preying upon the homeless because it that is salient commentary. When you add in the mayor who feels like a David Dinkins analog, because this was the point where New York had its first black mayor. I double checked and Dinkins was mayor when this was published is extra uncomfortable. But aside from the social commentary, there is some really interesting flat out superhero bits in here with this group of vampires who have sworn off blood from living victims and are choosing to fight Dracula, their leader, Tanya. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you get in superhero vampire stories. And it's neat. It gives Batman allies that make sense for this story. And you don't have to work through existing characters in this plot who would have sort of taken away from Batman being the center of this story. You didn't need the whole Bat family. You get some Alfred and some Jim Gordon. And Tanya and her crew have stake guns. And that was awesome. That was awesome. Yes, there's all sorts of great tech in this book. Page 12 has an absolutely hilarious looking Batmobile. I mean, Jones is having a Batman looking gigantic because Jones's Batman is always gigantic, taking up the entire cockpit of the Batmobile. It's pretty great. And only Kelly Jones, only would it work with Kelly Jones. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like a clown car. One interesting note, and I don't know exactly how I feel about this, but Batman is not asked for his consent. You, you can't talk about vampires without getting into like the, the sexual dynamic here. But he is, he is made a part of this plot to you know, get rid of Dracula without his permission and so uh, that's an interesting reversal of the typical gender and sex dynamic when it comes to i I guess pretty much any superhero comic book uh where it's you know our our james bond on the brain with uh, no time to die i guess it's already out by now (laughs) (laughs) it it was it was great or bad or in the middle depending on how it is um, and I agree with your opinion, uh, listeners. Yeah, again, I don't, I don't really know how I feel about that, but I think it's, it's interesting to note. It is. There's some very sexual vampire stuff in here. At one point, we see vampires feeding from the thighs of a victim, which is some of the more sexual vampire stuff that you see in various places. Jones, for all of his horrorness, draws characters both men and women really sexy when he wants to with dracula with tanya these are beautiful people and even though their anatomy is a little funky because everyone kelly jones draws anatomy is a little funky and there are artists don't steal that man's joy yeah no there are artists who draw anatomy poorly because you know they don't know what they're doing 
Kelly Jones, you can tell he knows exactly what anatomy should be. And he's just like, no, this is my style. This is my jam. I'm going to draw wild. I can do it better. Fuck you, God. <laughs> so we are probably at a point where we should be wrapping this one up. I will add one particular bit where and in the end when Batman grows wings, the wings blend and merge with that giant Batman cape. And it looks, again, so cool. Oh. You got anything else you want to add in here before we move on to putting this one on our list, Will? I, I, I think there is a very nice synergy with the end of Dark Knight Returns in that Wayne Manor has been blowed up. Batman is dead and gone. But in Red Rain, he is dead. He is undead. And again, it's, it was just a nice note um, and a good point to end the book. And it would have been perfectly fine if that had been the end of the story. But God bless those men. God bless those <laughs> insane editors at DC who were like, let's see how far we can take this, boys. They take it a long oh. way. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So, Will, shall we? Time to put it on the board! So, w- let's go over to our big old list of Batman stories, which currently has 15 stories on it. Number one is Year One, Batman Volumes 1, numbers 404 to 407. Smack dab in the middle of the list at number seven is Zero Year, Batman Volume 2, numbers 21 to 27 and 29 to 33. And down at the bottom at number 15 is The Last Batman Story, question mark, from Batman Volume 1, number 300. We're, we're, we're near the top on this one. Oh, yes. Uh, so here, here's my thinking here. To put it at one, I think, and this is for any story, we have to have a story where the writing is excellent, the art is excellent, and its contribution to canon is incredibly important. The only thing that makes me not want to put this at number one is, one, our shared love and respect for year one, and two... The fact that this is an Elseworld, it's not critical to understanding Batman. It wouldn't be the very first thing I would be handing to someone to read to get a sense of Batman in comics, but it sure would be the second thing I would hand them to be like, okay, after you're done with year one, here is this wild ass thing where Batman fights Dracula and becomes uh, a vampire at the end. I think it is hands down. Better than Dark Knight Returns. Um, I'll definitely agree. I was somewhere with this one, either at two or three. I was trying to figure out where I felt about it versus some of these days, the Batman Volume 3 Annual 2, which is a book that packs a real emotional gut punch and is a really beautiful story. But when you speak of a book in the greater bat canon, partially because it is only four or five years old, we don't know exactly where it's going to settle in that canon. And Red Rain, while it's not part of the continuity canon, is one of the great Batman graphic novels. It is a story that you can go, you have the barest idea of who batman is like everyone in the world does 
here's a story where Batman fights Dracula. <laughs> so I think uh, you, I, I think it is fair to drop this one in at number two. This this book just makes me happy. Like and and I know I read uh, Bloodstorm. I don't know if I made it all the way to Crimson Mist. It's going to be hard to top this, and uh, it's just such a just a pleasant experience to just think about and talk about. I'm I'm, I'm so amped. It, it, it gets darker as you go through because you think oh, Bloodstorm. Oh, I know that. Oh yeah, Crimson Mist. It's like okay, Bloodstorm. It's like Bloodstorm. Batman is fighting that vampire urge by Crimson Mist. He's just given up, and this is Batman as blood sucking creature of the night. Who decides that you know? Hey, you know, you know where's a good buffet? Arkham Asylum. Yeah. Okay. And then everybody decides, well, it's time to put the bat down. Yep. So now we're going to move back into the more distant past for our next story, which is the Secret of the Waiting Graves. This is from Detective Comics, Volume One, Number Three Ninety Five. The writer is Denny O'Neill. Pencils by Neil Adams, inks by Dick Giordano. The colorist is not credited, which is odd in modern times, but less common back at this point. Letters by Ben Oda. Editor is Julia Schwartz. The cover date on this book is January of 1970. In this story, Bruce Wayne is invited to a big party down in Mexico by a wealthy couple whose name is Moertos, that that doesn't bode ill at all, and winds up in the middle of an assassination attempt and a mysterious plot involving immortality flowers and some crime and such. Yeah, I I don't want to give too much away in that initial description because We'll talk about it as we go through. As this is a comic from the late 60s, early 70s, it didn't take up a full issue, so it's a bit on the shorter side. And the backup was part of a Robin serial. So we're not going to talk about that. And at some point, if we want to talk about that, we'll discuss it as the entire serial. But yeah, this is the first teaming of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, a pair of creators who would take Batman out of the 60s and reintroduce him as the Dark Knight. These guys redefined Batman in a way that we wouldn't have gotten the later books like the Englehart and Rogers run or all of Frank Miller's work if O'Neill and Adams hadn't started Batman down that path to begin with. This is still early in both of their careers and specifically in their Batman career. Yeah. I, I, I talked 40 minutes ago about how this was fuck, Mary kill bat chat. Uh, <laughs> Red rain. Like, man, that's, that's a book I'm fucking right there. Um, this, I, I would settle down and, um, and, and get married with a uh, secret of the waiting graves because it, I, you know, and again, listening back to that first episode, we talk about the case of the chemical syndicate. I, I said that that didn't seem to be a very good uh, example of comics of that period. But this here, I think 
and again, not being super well-versed with comics of the, the late 1960s, early 1970s, this seems like a very good example of kind of the state of the art at the time. There is a lot of narration. And, and, and when narration is probably the wrong way to put it. A lot of internal monologuing, the, a lot of the thought bubbles. So it's like Batman explaining everything he's doing and thinking, but it's enjoyable. It is a fun read and it's a, it's a comic you can have a good time with. Absolutely. All of the O'Neill and Adams stories are interesting, uh, are interesting at the least. And, some are some of my favorite Batman stories. Uh, we're actually, we'll tease this a little more later on, but we're going to get to one of those great Adams and O'Neill stories next episode. But this one is very much right out of the gate. There are interesting little bits here. The, the Sybil flowers, as they're called, these mystical flowers that allow the Muertos to have been alive for, at this point, something like 120 or 230 years and still look like they are in their early 30s are very much a proto-Lazarus pit because O'Neill and Adams will go on to create Rachel Ghoul. So that's, that's an interesting little thing where this is the initial story seed of something that will become more fleshed out in a later use. But there's a lot to enjoy. I mean, the, the Muertos aren't particularly major villains. It's not like I ended this story and it's like, oh, shoot, they died. I wish that we could have gotten more with them. But they were also not like, oh, God, I really am just, I've only been reading these characters for 16 pages. And I'm glad you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you're dead. I'm trying to remember like their their dastardly plot at this point. What was their plan? What was the thing that they wanted to do aside from killing the people in the hot air balloons? They have some sort of criminal enterprise that was not made clear, but someone had found out that they were criminals and that they had this possible immortality flower. And they didn't know who it was, but they had various suspects. So they invited all of those suspects to this thing to use it as a cover to lure them in, to, to have them available to kill them. Ah. So that's why they, were t they sent the suspects up in hot air balloons so they could just take out the balloons and thus kill the suspects. This Valdez guy who did turn out to be part of the Mexican police force. I want to just highlight my, my, my favorite part of this book, the, the very funniest part. So Batman is being attacked by a train uh, attack falcon or some other bird of prey. Because of course, why not? And so he's like, uh geez what what am i gonna do what am i gonna do he wraps the bird up in the cape and then just slams the cape against the wall and the sound effect goes chunk oh, that's so funny the idea of batman just like taking the sack of bird and just beating it against the wall oh you couldn't get away with that today but back in the 70s you could absolutely have batman smash a bird into a wall wrapped up in his cape I, I did like the, the both uh, the 
the use of the Falcons and the use of the Wolves. It gave it a much more supernatural vibe because even though these the Muertos aren't vampires, there is that sort of, you know, vampires control animals of prey. So it was a neat little bit throughout the book. I will also say I don't miss those half page ads that they used to have in comics. Because if, if you're reading this story digitally now, you can see like some of them are half pages with big white space at the bottom of that page. And that's because there was a half page ad there. And those always just, you know, there, there aren't that many pages in there. You can't give the artist a whole page. And I know, I know it's capitalism, la, la, la. But God damn it. Here's, here's the thing that I have never quite understood. DC and Marvel and I guess suppose Image. I I this is, is going to sound very bizarre. I don't know if I've ever actually read an Image floppy. Like I can't have I. Anyway, I don't know why digital comics don't have ads. Like DC will have house ads, right? But there's no there's no other outside advertising, and that seems very strange to me. I mean, there's very. Comics have less and less outside advertising in them as it is. But you'd think, especially with digital, it would be so easy to tack on a few digital ads in there. Even more house ads than they sometimes do. Because there are plenty of digital books that have even no house ads. It is an odd thing. I've never thought about it. But, yeah. Because, you know, I I like... Uh, you know, you can pick up a, a print comic from 30 years ago and you can get a sense of like what the period was like, like watching an episode of say like Price is Right. You can get a sense of sort of what pop culture was like at the time. In the same way, we have to understand like the political context, you know, going back to Red Rain and the AIDS crisis of the late 1980s, and early 1990s. Same thing with Holy Terror, which tries to touch on some of those things, too. You know, it's nice to understand what's going on in pop culture. And, you know, the ads can help with that. So anyway, that would be kind of cool if we had that. And, and, and back issues. I don't, I don't need, like, my very newest comics to have ads. But, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I will also say, this is a book that you can tell from certain places has had, at least for the digital version, color retouches. The, the colors are have had some digital separation done to them. And I'd be curious to read this in its original colors because it's just, there, there were times where it was a little shinier than I'm used to seeing a book from the 70s. It wasn't terribly off-putting, but it was just a little bit, a couple of times it was like, huh, I, I would have liked to see this as it was. And it's it's definitely like the coloring approach of the, the period. I'll say that. Like, these are surreal. These are, hey, we can print color comics. You know, let's, let's show off every panel that we can and, and the depths of color we can pull off. Um, so it's, it's very surreal. And you, get, you, you crack up on, you know, a, a book that came out today. You would not see this kind of stuff. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, finally, I did like the the ending, even though it does end. It ends 
a little too quickly that the Sybil flowers that have been keeping the Muertoses alive and also driving them mad for the past 130-ish years are destroyed. And then they start running and the more they exert themselves, they age really quickly and then turn to skeletons and fall into the waiting graves. It's a very horror comics moment. It is the kind of thing you would have seen in an EC comic. And we're coming out of the point where the comics code was completely hampering the supernatural. So writers and artists were able to play with some of this stuff a little more. So you get a pretty cool Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade turning to dust moment before their skeletons fall into those titular waiting graves. It's a great visual moment. Adams does some cool stuff with it. I I will point out momentarily in a problematic creator watch i double checked because i was worried neilans is not problematic he's apparently just a jerk which is a, a, <laughs> a thing it is a very different thing i usually wouldn't have called it out but it was like huh i had to dig through this it's like yeah okay not problematic crazy he believes in the hollow earth and not the most pleasant guy but he is not problematic in any particular political way and was an early proponent of creators rights so thumbs up for him on that front I, I will say that what I liked about the ending, <laughs> Batman riding on the graves in like, I guess, finger dust was like a good like, <laughs> eh, fuck you, you guys are dead. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he literally like writes with his finger 1969 nice on their uh, on their headstones. Like it, it's it's a fun little touch. Yeah, it's it's a fun story. It's a very solid Batman with something a little bit supernatural, but also with a crime story as he's figuring out why they're trying to kill Valdez and fighting henchmen. It does a lot of what you want from a nice short Batman story with some good art and some cool, just general Batman stuff. So I think with that time to put it on the board. So we're definitely in the top half of the list on this one. Again, there is historical significance to this book as it is the first work by two creators who would work together to create some of the most important Batman stories ever. But it isn't one of the most important Batman stories ever. There are definitely three more that we'll get to over time that are considerably more important to bat canon than this it's not gonna beat dark knight i think because dark knight still has that import to the canon in it where do you feel about it versus beautiful people at number five the paul dini jh williams detective comics one-off Oh, brother Matt, you are you are high on this book. Uh, I'm again looking at this very much in a historical context for its import. I'm not saying it stays there. I'm saying we can definitely. I don't think it's. I don't think it beats Beautiful People. But I'm going. It can't go higher than what, in your opinion? I think it can't go higher than Beautiful People. Okay. I, right, I agree. I don't think it's. I don't think it beats Beautiful People. Dini writes a great Batman. J.H. Williams' art is stunning. And while I completely know that Neil Adams is a, a great master, 
I, I'm more, much more in the Williams camp. Below that is last week's uh, Homewreckers, Life on Mars, Batman the Brave and the Bold, number 20. This is, this is a book that has no relevance to canon again. It's an it's a all-ages, fun little one-off. It's a lot of fun. It's really enjoyable. But it's, it has no import to the great canon of Batman stories. So for that, I think I enjoyed that comic more. I, I know. I, this is, it's starting to get hard now, isn't it? 17 weeks in and it's finally getting hard. <laughs> um, look, I'll, I'll tell you my thinking. Okay. Not taking its, its sort of historical import into mind. I was going to place this about squarely in the middle. Okay. So, so you're, you're maybe like a couple of notches higher than I would be. But I, I think we could, you know, as you said, it's clearly top half. I am more toward the bottom of the top half. And I think you're more toward the middle of the top half. Yes. I, I'm, what do we say about it in between Doomsday Book, uh, Detective 572, and Zero Year? So it would become our new number eight. I am, I am down with that. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting listening again to that first episode where we're like, oh, yeah, zero year, it's number two. And then we have basically found reasons to just keep on pushing it down. And it's falling solidly there into the middle of, of what we got going on. And I think that's about right. I mean, uh, we'll also be fair. It's case of the chemical syndicate will continue to slowly but surely stick near the bottom just because it, golden age comics are rough. And that is far from the best example of Golden Age Batman. But it has a good shot of not moving down further this episode. Oh, it is not moving down tonight, my friends. Because our final story this week is a comic that has a great title. And that is probably the only thing that is great about it. This is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. A six-issue miniseries of that title. Written by Kevin Van Hook. Artist is Tom Mandrake. Colors by Nathan Eyring. Letters by Steve Wands. Editors Michael Siglane and Harvey Richards. With cover dates of December of 2008 through February of 2009. This was a six-issue miniseries published bi-weekly. And knowing by those cover dates, it launched right around Halloween. Again, this one is you know, you'd think this one is exactly what's on the tin, but it's kind of not because there's all sorts of weird Lovecraftian stuff sort of thrown in here as well. Yeah. Kevin Van Hook, the writer, had no prior Batman cred. And after this does do a couple of other Batman stories, Tom Mandrake, on the other hand, has had a storied career. He's had runs on Batman in the mid 80s where he co-created Black Mask. He's best known for his various works with writer John Ostrander, including the the Spectre run that Ostrander did 60 something, 62 issues in the 90s, the middle third or so of Ostrander's creator-owned Grimjack series, and all manner of other works. I am generally speaking a mandrake fan but this is not him at his a game oh no we will hit some other mandrake we'll hit a uh, an issue with the specter eventually that is a batman joker story batman joker inspector that is gorgeous 
And I wonder if a lot that might have to do with Mandrake inking himself on this book or the fact that it is possibly a bi-weekly series that might have come out kind of rushed. It's like, okay, we're, we want to release this thing two weeks apart. So, yeah. No, I Mandrake tends to ink himself, so I'm not going to think that it's that. I think that this might have a lot to do with the rushed schedule of the book. But this is not a good comic. No, 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 it, it is not. And, and I'll tell you, I, I looked at that, that schedule too, and I had kind of an inter, uh, a different read on it. My impression was that DC saw this and they wanted to burn through it as quickly as possible. Also, like, it's we, the possibility. We want to get this book out and then we want to forget about it. Like we want it to be done. The only um, problem with that, good sir, is there is a sequel. No. Oh, yes. No. Batman Confidential, you know, the Legends of the Dark Knight book of its time with the rotating creative teams. Batman Confidential, numbers 44 to 48. Batman versus the Undead. A comic that is so unmemorable that me, in case you y'all haven't noticed, my brain is like a steel trap. I remember writers, artists, I remember all this stuff off the top of my head. I had completely forgotten there was a sequel to this comic. I had completely what? repressed that there was a sequel to this comic. With, with Van Hook writing it? Oh, yeah. Exact same creative team. Picks up with some of the same characters. Whole nine yards. You're fucking with me. I don't nope. believe you. And, it, you know, and the thing about it is it's not available on infinite so it it might just not exist it might be a fever dream that appears on amazon only but jesus i mean all right you can't right, tell we... that this was set up to be like a series of miniseries or something because this the ending of this is the nothing burgeriest nothing burger to ever end yeah, and I just assumed that oh, oh, look at these fuckwads. They're they're trying to set up uh, a sequel for this shitty book that's never going to happen. And now you fucking tell me that it happened. Oh, god damn it! All right, I want to I want to hone in on why exactly this is such a bad book because the writing is ass. The writing is so bad, and and I can give you two two little examples. Two little small examples that point out how bad the writing is. And look, in in my day job, I teach writing. I, I I teach news writing. I teach feature writing. Words matter to me. And to see the lack of care in putting these words together is offensive to me. So two examples, and they're both like strangely related to food. He's uh, he's doing a, a Claremont. I, I know you like making that reference. Uh, uh-huh. There are there are several Claremonts in this book. One per issue for the first four issues until what, one per issue for the first three and then two in issue four. Whereas nice. like, let's give this whole character. Let's give him a name. Let's give him some emotions and then let's brutally murder them. Murderfied. So. Again, they're, they're small, but they say so much about the lack of care. So in one of the Claremonts, we have this, this poor young woman who's getting off work and she's thinking about uh, you know, her vacation. And Van Hook says, by tomorrow, she'll be on her second or third glass of tequila. And that, that is a verbatim quote. I'm not, I'm not making that up. I'm not making it up. I read it myself. 
Her second or third glass of tequila. You don't drink tequila by the glass. You do that and you die. You know, Will, that jumps out at me as well. I do not drink. I am a teetotaler. However, even I know you do not drink tequila by the glass. You drink I shots mean, of tequila. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I suppose you could have like a like a tumbler of tequila. You could have tequila neat. I, nobody sits around thinking about, oh, I'm going to drink a glass of tequila. What the fuck was that? The other example, same thing. Toward the end, uh, when we've got our dashing good-ish vampire. Uh, he's talking about the contents of his fridge and he says stale roast beef. Stale roast beef. Stale roast beef. <laughs> now, I tell you, friends, I've had a lot of meat in my day. A lot of red meat. A lot of beef. Beef doesn't go stale. It doesn't ever. It goes bad. You know, right? You, you get it gets you know it gets some funk to it. You know, it it, it turns, but it doesn't go stale. I, again, he's he's writing with a language that is not ours. And again, those are just two small, piddling little examples. But it it shows that he is not a good writer. You want to know the one that bugged the living shit out of me? Oh, oh, oh look look at what you did, people. You, you get Matt to swear. Yeah, uh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. In issue one, Batman is doing the autopsy on a victim that was thrown off of a roof by the vampires. And the name of the victim is Robin Baskin, which is there just to set up a bad fat joke. So Batman says, I did not even write it down because I knew reading the exact words would make me angry again. But fortunately, I'm sitting right next to the comics, so I am going to find this particularly terrible line. The irony of a man with that name having a weight problem doesn't escape me. First, why do you need to make a fat joke there? That is a really shitty thing to do. And two, this is Batman. Talking into the recorder that he is making for his case notes. Why is Batman making this fat joke that nobody's going to hear but him? And, and you see the, the, the thing that's like uh, double bad uh, is uh, Mr. Ice Cream wasn't even fat. Yeah. Like he, he was 205. That that is a normal regular weight. Yeah, unless he was five feet tall, he's just a you know at at, at six one. My ideal weight is between one ninety five and two o five. Guess what? Not that fat. This book absolutely felt like I don't know if I'm ever gonna get to write a superhero comic like this again. So I am going to throw everything I can in the kitchen sink into this comic. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and so, sorry to interrupt, but just no. tying back into uh, to the to Baskin Robin joke or the Robin Baskin, whatever the fuck that dumb thing was. It, so much of the narration, so much of the book is about premised or at least the, again, the narration is about making these jokes 
that falls so fucking flat. Like the narration is like, oh, look at look at this fuckwad. Look at him. Oh, I bet he thinks that he's going to live. Ha ha. Surprise. He's going to die. And it's just so awkward and bad and just worded wrong and just ugh. and and, and get to get getting to your point. He just does things that don't serve the story, that don't that don't tell an engaging story. Wonder Woman. And this gets yep. to your point where he's just like, I'll just I'll, I'll do all the things I can because this is the only chance I'll get. Wonder Woman shows up for two pages and she she has terrible dialogue, terrible dialogue. And, and, and it's th- it's awful. Yep. And I this one is absolutely laid. I have to imagine on, on Mandrake, not on Van Hook. This is after the, the glass of tequila lady is murdered by a vampire. There's a panel of Wonder Woman over her body and her shirt is open and her bra is out. And it's like that is the very often uncomfortable thing that comic books, superhero comic books do with the sexualizing of a dead female victim. And I just saw that panel. I was like, she didn't need to be disrobed at all for that. The vampire went for her neck. Why did you? do that other than an uncomfortable degree of titillation that did not need to be there oh i just i can't get over how terrible wonder woman's dialogue was it was uh, hold on let me quote it it's so bad and she only shows up in like three pages Um, oh uh, and later on in the book it's like oh i i talked to wonder woman she said she she ran into a vampire um well while you look for that like you also mentioned nightwing shows up for a few pages Green Arrow is in there. Etrigan the Demon, that makes sense. Because you're dealing with the supernatural and Jason Blood is Batman's supernatural contact. But why did Jason get in touch with Green Arrow? Oh, because he can shoot wooden shafts at the vampires. Yeah, but you could turn into Etrigan and just burn them alive. Or, or you could get a stake gun. So here's, here was the line that I just absolutely hated. And this is, this is Wonder Woman. You want to play rough, do you? Well, you picked the wrong woman to play rough with. What the shit? What, what grown-ass man writes that and thinks it's clever? It, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't read right. What are you doing? And let's, not, let's also not forget that also Manbat, Kirk Langstrom, both as scientist and as Manbat, pops up at the end. And... The beginning of issue six slash chapter six in the trade is so poorly laid out. It randomly throws in a couple of lab assistants who are just sort of there and occasionally insert some random dialogue. But it's why are we doing why did you need other characters when Langstrom could have just been doing the experimentation himself? There was no need for these other characters in this page. The last issue completely they see i'm incoherent because this book was so frustrating the main villain is this mad scientist who is trying to bridge the gap between the afterlife and the living world they defeat him in issue five and in issue six it's just this sort of mindless monster that he had summoned that we have seen for half of an issue and that we have no real investment in. But you got rid of the mad scientists 
And importantly, this monster is not a vampire or a werewolf. It looks like, for those of you familiar with your Lovecraft, speaking of uncomfortable writers, we, we won't even go into all of the awful things about H.P. Lovecraft. It's a shogoth. It's this otherworldly, froggy-looking monster thing. This bo- Oh, and, and speaking of Lovecraft, I mean, this book is littered with wink-at-the-camera nods to other horror properties. The main vampire is named Demeter, which is a reference to Dracula, the ship that Dracula takes from, uh, from Transylvania to arrive in London is, guess what? The Demeter. The mad scientist is named Dr. Herbert Combs, named after Jeffrey Combs, the actor who played Herbert West in the Lovecraft-inspired film Reanimate. Jeffrey Combs also of note, the voice of the question in Justice League Unlimited and numerous different roles on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Just that has uh, been the most pleasant part of this entire conversation. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Believe you, I, I can always talk about some Jeffrey Coons. There's all, I mean, there is some flat out Lovecraft bit where it's, you know, Lovecraft, you know, some of that stuff was real, which is shtick that shows up in way too many horror comics and horror novels and gives way too much credit to an absolutely terrible human being. Why would you mention Lovecraft in the text of this book? Like, yes, we understand what you're going for. You don't have to explain the reference as you're making it. You asshole. There's a bit where Manbat is reverting back to his Langstrom form and there's probably the, the sound of the bones rearranging. And it's like, yeah, I see you're, you're, you're going for American werewolf in London with the Manbat transformation. I get it. I get you're throwing in a reference to that, which interestingly, the, the director of American werewolf in London. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that, that is just the cherry on top of this shit Sunday. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends of, of all genders out there. Let me say that if you can find the trade, if you can find the trade of this, uh, of this terrible book, you are treated to an introduction by one John Landis, an American filmmaker who definitely didn't kill two people and, and, and sired one awful son of a bitch. Speaking of problematic creators, you have some Batman stories in their background. Yeah. And, and apparently like uh, Landis had worked in like movies or some property with Van Hook. Like you, you read Wikipedia and like Van Hook is much more into like television and film production and effects and, I hope he's better at all that stuff than he is at comic books. But it's it's just it's just so right that of course John Landis would come in and he would write this and and let me say just one thing about some another character that we haven't talked about like Superman just he doesn't for being right there in the title he doesn't have a whole lot to do with this and I can't believe the number of times that they state in the text like this is not subtext but just state plain out, oh, Superman's vulnerable to magic. Every like, it's, issue. It's repeated. I am, I am not an idiot. Reading this book make, makes me feel like an idiot, but you tell me something once, I got it. Ugh. Every issue that Superman is in, 
Superman gets top billing and does not appear until the last page of issue two. There is a full third of this series where there is no Superman, but there is Wonder Woman and Nightwing. And I, those are, hey, I love Wonder Woman. I love Nightwing, but this is not Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman and Nightwing and Green Arrow and Jason Blood and Man Bat versus vampires and werewolves. Oh, this was not good. No, no. I and you know what? I didn't think it was going to make me so angry after I read it. But yeah. uh, but in talking about it, I'm like, man, this is this makes me angry. It was so bad. Exactly. Um, you know, I read it and I finished it. And I was like, I remember this thing being really, really terrible. And now I I read it again. It's like, yeah, I mean, this is not good, but it's not making me angry. And then I start talking about it. And it's like, wait, no, this is making me angry. Because <laughs> I, I had to sit back and reread this thing. When I'm, I still haven't finished my comics from last week, let alone this week. I had to waste time reading this thing again. For all of you out there, uh, this is how much we love you that we yes. subjected ourselves to Superman and Batman versus vampires and werewolves. And and I think maybe we both prejudged this a little bit. You know, I had not I had not read it before, but when you have a comic that's of relatively recent vintage. You know, what, what, what year was this? Uh, 08, 09. Yeah. If you can't get it digitally, that's a good sign that this is not something that DC is proud of. This is not something that has a lot of pent up desire behind it. So it wasn't entirely surprising that it was a big turd, but just the overall stinkiness of this turd was surprising as you get into it. And just how could you make... Batman and or Superman and Batman versus vampires and werewolves. How could you make it this boring and like this, this unfun to read? I it's incredible. I just want to throw in one other thing that bugged the hell out of me about this comic. You mentioned Wonder Woman and her terrible dialogue. There are a total over six issues of other than, you know, nameless just in a crowd, vampires, four female characters who I could probably count all of their dialogue on both my hands. There's Wonder Woman, whose dialogue is terrible. There is that first victim who is sexualized and murdered. There is Kirk Langstrom's lab assistant who has maybe one line. And there is the human blood bank that the vampire Demeter uses who shows up out of nowhere at the end of issue five and has one or two lines of dialogue why would you introduce this character and this concept at the very end of the series and do nothing with it I guess she's his sort of Renfield but his sexy Renfield Renfield should never be sexy he's Renfield (laughs) Uh, and, and I think we're, we're basically out of time to continue talking about this. But this book kills a kid for fun. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And spends a lot of time with Superman moping about the kid. And, and you know, you Superman should be emotionally affected and invested by this kid he saved getting turned into a vampire. But he mopes. That is the only word for the way Superman reacts to this death. He mopes. And it's one thing for a comic to make a decision to kill a child, 
Like, right. I'm not saying that you can't kill kids in anything, but to be so inept as to not get any emotion out of it, like Billy, like, and this, this is again, the creativity of the, the writing genius here. Billy shows up is, is a kid in peril, gets saved on then, Oh, he gets turned into a vampire. They try to save him. They fail. And then, you know, he dies. And it's just like, it's so empty and meaningless and just, ugh, ugh. Yeah. So I, I would, generally speaking, never prejudge where we are going to put a comic. But after about the first minute or so of that discussion that we just had, I, I just kind of went over to the list and I just sort of plugged this one in in a place that I think is appropriate. Uh, that, that would be the very bottom of the list. Yes, sir. We're, we're going to put this on the board at the bottom. Yeah. Um, because, uh, again, case of the chemical, uh, chemical syndicate at 16, uh, you know, as being uh, an early crime comic, not having to do a, a lot with Batman or the mythos, it's, you know... It's just not great for the period or for Batman or whatever. Batman 300, you know, this this last story of the Batman question mark just doesn't really pay off its concept. None of these books, none of these books have felt like a waste of my time. None of these books have offended me as a reader. Superman and Batman versus vampires and werewolves, it's going to be tough to unseat this at the very bottom of the list. And spoiler alert, uh, we're going to have to get into some some White Knight era uh, talk to um, uh, country to, to get this out off of the bottom. Because man, this, this book is very bad. When we were batting about the theme for this episode, I remembered this and I was like, you know what, let's throw this on here. It was, I remember it being campy and pretty terrible. But I was like, some of that stuff can have some charm. And, you know, we need some comics that aren't too great to counterbalance. Like, we're talking about a lot of really great Batman comics. But this this wasn't campy. This was just not good. No, no. Like, it campy should be fun. It should be enjoyable. Red Brain has some real camp to it. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's a fun read. And again, I want to read those next two books right now. Um, I... I mean, I want to read, I, again, I, I can't fathom that someone would read uh, this thing and think, oh yeah, let's do another one of those. I want to read that to see how terrible it is and see if it's any better. But do I want to do that tonight? Absolutely not. No, we, Absolutely we, not. We will get there eventually, but not anytime soon. So uh, that Ooh. looks like we've, we've gotten our three stories. We've, we've vented our spleens. And so that's our stories for this week. Next week, it is time to spotlight the biggest of the Bat-Bats, the Toast of the Arkham set, the Clown Prince of Crime, the Joker, and three one-issue Joker stories. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and my cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013 and Will at Will Nevin. And remember, if you've got a lead on a butthole, please let me know. Also, be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or 
at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople. And all over ComicsXF for all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. Spooky.